1: Today, on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: If the church is to
2: grow, not just spiritually but numerically, it's going to happen because people are well fed, they grow in their faith they go on to maturity, and then they reproduce. Okay, that's how the church grows. You know, it's not, it's not because one guy like me gets up in the pulpit and then tries to evangelize as many people who come to a service. It's my primary responsibility as pastor teacher here at Cornerstone to equip you to help you to go on to maturity
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. The church is not meant to be an inward focused club with restrictive or exclusive membership. It is meant to be a living, growing organism. Evangelism is not optional. Christ Himself commissioned His disciples to go and make more disciples. That is your calling as a believer. As Pastor Gary challenges us in today's message, don't leave it up to the pastors and church leaders. Their job is to equip you for your mission, but you have to then take your own initiative to step out and carry Christ to the world. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: He's talking still actually along the same theme. He's talking about unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, But now he starts talking here about Christ ascending, descending. What does it mean about leading captives in his train, giving gifts to men? All right. So this passage here ties into a few other passages. If you've been with us in our Bible study through Luke 16, right here in Ephesians 4, and then also in 1 Peter chapter 3, We're going to tie together some information that some of you have been around Cornerstone long enough. You're going to be familiar with this, Uh, but this is an important passage that Paul inserts here in the letter to the Ephesians that talks about really what happened to Jesus after he was crucified. It also helps to answer when we tie all these passages of scripture together, what happened to saints, what happened to people who died before Jesus went to the cross. Are they in heaven? Where are they now? What about the whole Catholic doctrine of purgatory? Okay. Was Jesus in hell for the three days that he was dead? Or was he in heaven? Or was he in paradise? What are those differences when he ascended? Anyway, the first thing to understand is before Jesus Christ died on the cross, there was one place that everybody went when they died their souls. The souls of every person, whether they were a follower of God or not, every person went to what the Old Testament refers to as the grave. The New Testament sometimes refers to it also as the grave or even uses the Greek word Hades for hell. There was one location where everybody went, whether you followed God and the the righteous requirement of the sacrificial system or not. And that was the place called Hades in Greek or Sheol in Hebrew. Now, that one place, however, was divided into two sections. One section was called the place of torment. This part of Hades or Sheol is the torment side. And everybody who did not have a righteous relationship with God through the requirements of the law, who denied God, rebelled against God, and didn't practice the sacrificial system, they went to the torment side. Okay, The other side is called paradise, or in Luke chapter 16, it's called Abraham's side, the side that Abraham was on versus the torment side. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking about this story about a rich man and a beggar. The beggar's name later in the story at the end of chapter uh, 16 of Luke, his name was Lazarus. And it tells us in Luke 16 that between the torment side and the paradise side, there was a great chasm. There was a great gulf and no one could cross from one side to the other. The paradise side is where everyone went, their souls went, who believed in God through the sacrificial system. This is before Jesus dies on the cross. Those who believed in God and were righteous because of the sacrificial system, they went to the paradise side. Those who rebelled against God went to the torment side, and there was a chasm or a gulf that divided the two. Everybody with me so far? In Luke 16, it tells us that you could converse across the chasm, but you couldn't cross it. And Jesus, in telling the story in Luke 16, says that the, the rich man, who was an unrighteous guy, not because of his money, but they just because he was an unrighteous man who didn't believe in God, didn't worship God, he went to the torment side. Lazarus, who was the beggar, and he was a righteous man, he went to the paradise side, and it tells us that the rich guy, we'll just call him rich, all right, rich, Richard, on the torment side, is yelling over the chasm to Abraham who's there with Lazarus, as well as other righteous people. And Rich yells across the chasm, and he says, Father Abraham, you have many sons. Father Abraham, many sons had Father Abraham. Anyway, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you got that joke. But anyway, he says, he says, Abraham, he says, send Lazarus back to my family to warn them about torment. Okay, he's actually asking Abraham, send Lazarus, let him rise from the dead and go back to warn my family about this place of torment that I'm in. And Abraham responds back over the chasm and he says, They have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. What's his answer? His answer was, They have the scriptures. They have the truth. They know the truth. And Rich says back to Abraham, yeah, 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 but they'll believe if a guy comes to them from the dead, that'll get their attention. And Abraham says, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. That is a strong emphasis on the power of scripture, that there's nothing more powerful than the truth of scripture to bring somebody to the saving knowledge of who Christ is. And so Abraham says, no, can't, can't happen. But we learn from that Luke 16 passage that you, you might be able to have conversation across, but, but you can't go across. And so there, there is this paradise side separated from the torment side. Remember who else went to the paradise side? Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Who did Jesus promise would be with him in paradise? the thief on the cross, one of the thieves who acknowledged that he was a righteous man. Jesus turned and said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, that gives us a clue as to where Jesus went when he died. Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, this whole, this whole location of where all souls went, whether you were unrighteous or righteous, is again called Hades in the Greek or Sheol in the Hebrew. So in your, in, in your Hebrew bio, in in the Old Testament, a lot of times it'll say hell, it'll say the grave. New Testament will say Hades or hell or the grave. We're talking about one location known by different names. So Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the Hebrew, and therefore Hades translates hell. So now, everybody technically... But don't get your mind stuck on what you think hell is only about. Hell is only about torment and suffering now, yes. But back before the cross, hell was a, an umbrella term, or Hades, or Sheol, for the entire location. Unrighteous and righteous. Now, what Paul is writing here, and this is an important thing about what happened to Christ, where did he go? What Paul is writing about here in Ephesians chapter 4... There in verse 7, he says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And then verse 9, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. By the way, that tells us where Hades is. It's somewhere in the core of the earth. Okay, I know the core of the earth is supposed to be intensely hot. Well, you get the idea. That's true. Now, understanding this means... That Jesus descended to the paradise side of hell, which is what Paul means in Ephesians 4 9 by the lower earthly regions. But he he descends to the paradise side. Why? Again, Luke 23, 43, he promised the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the side that Jesus went to. I've heard some TV evangelists talk about how Jesus went to hell on your behalf and my behalf. And they talk about how he experienced torment and how he suffered. No, hold on. They They got the word right because technically... This whole, this whole place is called Hades or hell. But they have him on the wrong side. Okay? Jesus did not go to the torment side. He went to the paradise side. He went to Abraham's side. He went to the side of the righteous. Now he goes there, and listen to this, First Peter 3, 18 through 20. Listen to what Peter writes. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom... He also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, interesting. Peter gives us some more insight into this whole, into this whole thing and where Jesus went. Jesus descends into paradise, the paradise side of hell, of hell or Hades. But because of what we learn in Luke 16, he's able to declare, he's preaching to those who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah. In other words, and he's not preaching, which is euangelion, meaning evangelizing, it's a different word in the Greek, meaning he's declaring, he's declaring who he is to those who are on the unrighteous side of Hades, to announce to them and declare to them that he's the long-awaited Messiah that they rejected, that the promised Messiah, that all the sacrificial system was pointing towards Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. And those who practice the sacrificial system in the Old Testament were looking forward to Messiah, putting their faith in a coming Messiah, and all those who rejected the sacrificial system rejected Messiah. So Jesus comes to the paradise side, and in order to prove that his justice is just, he declares to those who rejected him under the old covenant, I am he who is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And because you rejected me, by disobeying God and not honoring him through the sacrificial system, which was pointing towards me, you have no life. You have no life. Now, Paul goes on to say here, there in, still here in Ephesians chapter 4, look, at back, look again at verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. What does that mean? What that's telling us is, then, after three days, where did Jesus go when he died on a cross? Three days was dead and buried. His spirit went to the paradise side, and after three days, he rose again, assumed a glorified physical body, but he vacated paradise. So when he ascended from Hades or Sheol, he led believers, because all of these people on paradise side had put their faith and trust in a coming Messiah prior to the cross, under the Old Covenant, they were doing something by faith, looking forward to Messiah. Messiah shows up on the paradise side and says, I am he that you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. I died on a cross so that they might be saved under the same crucifixion of, of the Messiah as we are. By then seeing and believing in the one that they had long awaited for, they now put their faith and trust in him because he goes to the paradise side, and then he leads believers. That's what it means by he led the captives in his train. It's a, it's a figurative, uh, it doesn't mean like train, like choo-choo. It mean, you know, the train of his robe. It's, a, it's the picture of in, in a procession following after him, he leads believers out of paradise and takes them to heaven because no one could get to heaven before the sacrifice of Christ. Heaven was not occupied prior to the cross of Christ, because no man gets to the father, but by Christ. And until Christ came, heaven was not occupied, not, not by any people who had died by the angels, by God himself, but not by people until the sacrifice of Christ. So he ushers the spirits or the souls of those from the paradise side, takes them to heaven and empties paradise. So now it is true when we talk about how, well, hell is a place of torment and hell is only a place of torment. That's true. Even though this entire location was at once called hell or Hades, because paradise has been emptied, now it is true to say that hell is exclusively a place of torment. Only this side is occupied today. And still those who reject Christ, even post-cross, will go to the torment side of hell. Paradise has been emptied. Now, here, for those of you with Catholic backgrounds, this is where the Catholic doctrine of purgatory comes from, because it is true that at one point, there was, if you will, a holding tank between hell and heaven. that was paradise, okay But you, you don't get someone out of paradise because you pray them out. you can't. Purgatory does not exist. it is not a biblical doctrine. Okay? The concept In terms of a holding tank between hell and heaven, that concept is in place biblically. But since Christ died on a cross, he emptied paradise. There's no holding tank anymore. Now through Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Christ and you die, your physical body goes into a grave, your spirit goes directly to heaven. Now heaven is a place that is occupied. Now we can get to go directly to heaven because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us on the cross. And paradise has been emptied. Okay, but there 's no longer a place where someone goes temporarily and you can pray them out and you can pray them to heaven that just with all due respect, if that 's what you 've been taught, that is just nowhere in scripture that 's just not in the Bible, which is all the more reason why every single person needs to make a decision you get you get one life to live you, you get an opportunity to make a decision for Christ because that will determine where you spend eternity, either the torment side or you go directly to be with the Lord in heaven. Okay, now, Paul is writing all this, but why does he insert all of this? Why is he talking about ascending, descending, this is where Jesus went, and then he led the captives in the train? Because what he's talking about now is he's going to go on here to talk about in the same theme, in order to maintain unity and to bring about maturity in the church, it's going to take leadership in the church. As helpers to oversee and to maintain unity and maturity. That's where he's going with this. So keep reading with me now, back in the text, verse 11. It was he, that is Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity, here's the word again, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, so here's maturity, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so so Paul, for good reason, kind of went around the barn. I'm not saying that to make fun of his approach. I'm just saying, for good reason, he, he talks about how Christ... He died, he descended lower earthly regions, and then he ascended, and he led captives free, and he emptied paradise, and then he establishes leadership in the church, and he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in order to help preserve, same theme, unity and maturity. Okay, everybody follow his, his train of thinking there and his logic? Now, a lot of people refer to this as the fivefold ministry of the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's actually technically a fourfold ministry. There's a, there's a Greek grammar rule called the Granville Sharp Rule, where the last two, pastor, teacher, are, are seen together in the Greek language. In other words, a pastor is to be a teacher. Not every teacher is a pastor, but every pastor should be a teacher. So it's really apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher. That's really in the original language, the way it reads. Now, we've talked about these offices before um, because, biblically speaking, a true apostle has to be one who is able to perform miracles by the Spirit of God and who has been an eyewitness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So as I've said in past times, the office of apostleship is still available, but unless you're going to meet that qualification, as for example, Paul did, he saw the risen Lord and he performed miracles, apostles themselves, even though that title is thrown around a lot today in a lot of churches, apostles themselves, not not as prevalent certainly as the office of an apostle. What does that mean? Someone can have that gifting of apostleship in that they plant works and then they hand it off to someone else. They get a church started and then they hand it off to someone else. They're not really a pastor. They're not really an evangelist. They are someone who who has kind of more of a visionary way in kingdom work and gets something going and then hands it off. Paul was an apostle. He didn't stay very long. It was unusual for him to stay 18 months or in this case with Ephesus, he stayed there three years. It was highly unusual. He usually planted a church, stayed a little while, handed it off. So, are there apostles today? That's, that's up for debate, um, but, but I would certainly say, surely, the office, the gifting of apostleship. Evangelists? Yeah, there are some people who are just really gifted with sharing their faith and winning people to Christ. I think that is a particular gift. I think we should all be evangelists in the sense of sharing our faith, but some people are just more gifted in that way, so you have apostles uh, evangelists. You have prophets, people who can foretell the Word of God. Sometimes we think that prophecy, prophecy is only about predicting the future. It's, it's, not, it's not always that, and certainly it should never contradict the Bible. But most of the time, a prophetic word is just something that lines up with God's Word for the edification of the church. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. And then you have pastors slash teacher. And, and so th- those, those gifts are given to the church in order to help maintain unity of the spirit and to help people go on to maturity okay my pastor chuck smith who's gone on to be with the lord now he he always had a phrase which was sheep beget sheep okay in other words if you healthy sheep reproduce so if the church is to grow not just spiritually but numerically it's going to happen because People are well fed. They grow in their faith. They go on to maturity, and then they reproduce. Okay, that's how the church grows. You know, it's not. It's not because one guy like me gets up in the pulpit and then tries to evangelize as many people who come to a service. It's my primary responsibility as pastor teacher here at Cornerstone to equip you. To help you to go on to maturity. Now I'm sensitive that at any time that I'm sharing God's word, there are a variety of people here. There are some of you who have been invited by a friend perhaps, or maybe you stumbled in because you were curious. And you don't have a relationship with Christ. And don't pretend to have one, and you're curious about it. Others of you have been a Christian for a long time. A really long time. And so there are differences of people spiritually in any one gathering we have as a church. So I will be sensitive to that. There's a lot of things I will say in the course of a teaching, Sundays and Wednesdays, to try to appeal a little bit to the, the skeptic, a little bit to the young believer, a little bit to the older believer. Okay? But my main responsibility is to equip, is to equip, is to teach God's Word in such a way that you understand the relevance, the significance, and the application for your lives so that you can go on to maturity, grow up as healthy sheep, and then you share your faith. And collectively, see, we can do a whole lot more than one guy can do standing in a pulpit. Collectively, we can do a whole lot more by being the instruments that God would use to further his kingdom in, in the world in which we live. So so this is this passage here, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, are... Um, and 13 are are my personal just pastoring here at Cornerstone. These these have been the bedrock verses for me to, to remind me what, what is my primary responsibility. And I have to say this is probably a good place to insert this. The only way that I can try to be as effective as possible as pastor teacher is because of the wonderfully gifted staff members we have here at Cornerstone who help share the responsibility of ministry in a variety of ways here at Cornerstone Chapel. Look, I'm the guy that, that, that gets under the lights and stands at the pulpit and the cameras are on me and all this kind of stuff. But please, please know this. I could not do what I do. And I mean this with all sincerity. I could not do what I do. And and to and to try to be true to the gifts God has given me, except for the faithfulness and the giftedness of a lot of other staff members and volunteers here at Cornerstone Chapel. So my gratitude and my thanks to all of our staff and all of our volunteers. Aren't you thankful for all of them? Amen. Jump in and
1: you'll find the corner. The book of Ephesians is a more formal letter from the Apostle Paul, touching on a variety of subjects, but landing on some major points that all followers of Jesus need to embody. One such passage reminds you that there's a war going on beyond what you can see. Spiritual forces are battling for your allegiance, but you can protect yourself. By immersing yourself in the Bible and spending time regularly with God and other believers, you'll be prepared to face whatever Satan tries to throw at you. Today, you've taken a step in that direction by joining Pastor Gary in this study on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to continue studying the book of Ephesians by revisiting some of Pastor Gary's previous teachings, you can do so at cornerstoneconnection.cc or download our mobile app to take these messages on the go with you. We'd love to meet you too, so if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'll have a time of worship and Bible study, and we're always excited to meet new people. Be sure to tell us you listen to Cornerstone Connection. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of Ephesians, so join us again on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still still you know. You're not alone.